Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson from the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Isa Ding, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, we're going to talk about her new book, The Performative State, Public Scrutiny and Environmental Governance in China. Isa, welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. So, Isa, my stereotype of Chinese bureaucrats involves a lot of people kind of sitting around a really dreary office building sipping tea, reading the newspaper, taking naps at their desk, um, you know, so kind of a, a steady job, but not very hard and also not very fulfilling. Um, but this is not what you saw in your, your field work, um, looking at the Environmental Protection Bureau in China. So, so tell me what it was like there. It was indeed not like that. And what you described, um, the Chinese bureaucrat sitting in their desk, reading newspapers, drinking tea, and monitoring the stock market, don't forget about the stock market, um, is the image of the bureaucrat. Actually, you will find um, in papers, articles, books on environmental governance in China, uh, a few decades ago, so for instance, in the 1990s, there's this general image of inertia with environmental governance. And, and there's also uh, studies done on local corruption, for instance. Um, but that's not the you know what I observed when I was in China um, following these environmental bureaucrats around. Um, and what I saw was what I call performative governance. And first, I, I expected to see um, a bunch of people who were just uh, very inactive. But what I saw was hyperactivity of the bureaucracy. So these bureaucrats were constantly on the move. But what's so interesting is that they're super active, but they're not doing much that were effectively um, that could effectively change the behavior of the enterprises. And performative governance is what they did instead. And this is, um, I define this as the state's deployment of virtual 
uh, verbal, visual, and gestural symbols of good governance for the audience of citizens. So what they were doing is that they were enacting these symbols of good governance. Um, and the idea is that states, in this, in this case, China's environmental state, use this to diffuse public opinion crises and to shape public perceptions of itself. Um, and the main alternative to performative governance is substantive governance, meaning governance that is geared toward giving people what they demand and what they deserve. So, so to make it concrete in the context of environmental governance, government, the, the substantive would be like I'm shutting down factories or I'm levying punitive fines on people who are polluting too much or uh, forcing them to install you know, uh, scrubbers or something like that. Uh, but you're saying that that wasn't what they were doing. So what were they what were they running around all day keeping busy doing instead? So there were fines, but the fines were so small that the enterprises were happy to pay those periodic fines then to upgrade um, their pollution treatment facilities or to run the um, the scrubbers uh, all the time because electricity is expensive. So the fines would be a slap on the wrist. Um, the environmental bureaucracy couldn't close down factory. It didn't even have the legal authorities uh, authority to close down factories. Um, but what they were busy doing uh, mostly was kind of running around doing these investigations and also in the process in their interactions with the citizens, demonstrating a lot of uh, responsiveness uh, to citizen demands and also benevolence or what the government itself calls service-orientedness. Um, so some examples of service-orientedness would be, um, for example, you're a citizen, you're upset about a factory in your neighborhood, and then you go to uh, the EPA, the Chinese EPA, to file a complaint or you call them up on the environmental hotline to launch a complaint. And then um, what the, the bureaucrats do is that they're fully aware they're not able to resolve your complaints. But what they do is that they stay on the phone, they um, act as your punching bags, they play therapist, and if you're in the office, they serve you tea. They're, they're being very, very um, uh, nice to you. Um, and then they're also very responsive to citizen complaints, but uh, remain symbolically responsive because um, the investigations, most of them result in non-punishment of the enterprises and the bureaucrats are fully aware of that. But they sort of fool the the people, like people come in and hear someone and they say, well, we're going to address your concerns. And then they just kind of go away and give up and, and assume something's going to happen. So they don't completely fool people. And this is what's really interesting here. Um, and I can just tell you, um, there is this media training guide I came across um, during field work. And actually, uh, most of the bureaucrats, they receive media training. Um, and then so in the training guide, bureaucrats are taught uh, to uh, increase their contacts with journalists. 
Um, so when there are these environmental crises happening in the localities, usually, um, you know, citizens will complain and then uh, journalists will reach out. So then what these bureaucrats were told is that when you're talking to the journalists and when you're kind of trying to, you know, explain to them what's happening and help them make sense of um, uh, the environmental issues, you you explain to them, you faithfully explain to them the process, right? You tell them the facts, but then you avoid speaking about results. So they're not completely lying to you, right? They, they know they're ineffective, but they're not lying to you. Um, in, in fact, in some of the uh, responses to citizen complaints, they actually tell you that, um, you know, we did all these investigations and um, we didn't discover any violations of environmental regulations and policies. And and thank you very much for supporting our environmental governance. So it's not lying, um, but they emphasize certain things over others. They will emphasize how hard the bureaucracy was working on addressing citizen complaints. They'll emphasize we stayed up all night to catch the polluters. We braved the snow to catch the polluters. Um, we, uh, we, outsmart them and then we you know we know that they started running their scrubbers during the day so we stayed up till 2 a.m and then we surprised attacked them right so these efforts of you know these um these efforts and gestures and and kind of these symbols of concern uh for citizens issues and also kind of reaching out to them you know asking them to give their inputs about uh the investigation process and and these things are emphasized uh, over others and the things that that get de-emphasized is the result is that at the end of the day that um very few enterprises get punished and those that get punished are um, you know, they were punished over and over again. So the um, so some of the enterprises that were given fines during my field work, I actually made sure to uh, check the uh, the EPB's website the uh, 12 months later and in the following year, then the following year. So even 2019, mm-hmm. the same enterprises were still receiving citizen complaints on the EPB's website. Uh, so then I could know for sure that uh, these investigations have had a, a uh, very small impact on enterprise behavior and the bureaucrats to be sure they know that they knew that and they you know and I know they know that because they tell me that they told me that um and but they still felt it was really important to um respond to the citizens and to express their concern and their care and also sometimes to get into the news cycle get in the middle of the news cycle and then to be actively shaping the bureaucracy's public image um in the public sphere okay so for people who who don't know china as well i think there's a few things about context we should probably go over so um uh, first of all, I, I didn't I didn't specify it in, at the beginning, but your your field works was from basically 2013 was when it was you started out, and then you kind of continued through 2018, 2019. Is that right? Just to I fix did the time frame. Participation in 2013 and 14, and then in the years after that, and before um, you know until before COVID, I was doing follow up interviews. Okay. Yeah. Um. So it's so it's pretty much a picture of the the mid 2010s. Um, and so, uh, okay. So the background, so one thing, uh, is, you know, China has certainly, 
bureaucratically kind of promoted the level of the Environmental uh, Protection Bureau um, over time uh, in, in the bureaucratic structure and also has placed more and more, you know, pretty much continually rising emphasis on, you know, how serious they are about the environment. So, you know, the, the 1990s picture where, you know, if they even, you know, they pretend to have an environmental, you know, bureaucracy, but at most it would just collect funds, you know, collect, collect some fees, which would help fund it. And then, but nothing would actually happen. Um, so, but now they, they claim to be taking it seriously. So why does the EPB not have any, uh, power to actually make anything happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are uh, kind of two ways of um, answering this question. So the one thing is there is so the subjects of my study. I was observing these street level bureaucrats. So there is a gap between what the bureaucrats do at the street level. And what they do in Beijing, and obviously we can say, you know, we can talk about whether these people in Beijing were still calling them, you know, bureaucrats, or, or could some of those also be uh, politicians. But anyway, so the, this book ultimately is a book about bureaucratic behavior at a street level, and a lot of those decisions, um, for instance, the the closure of the factories and the coal mines and um, and then the closure of um, uh, some of the coal fire plants and actually some of those got reversed later. Um, but those decisions come from above and they come from Beijing. So what we're seeing is on the one hand, you know, you could read it in the news about these dramatic closure of uh, uh, coal fire plants. But at the same time, there is this more invisible reality of everyday governance. And that's what I was looking at um, in my fieldwork. And my subjects, the street level bureaucrats, they had no power over those decisions. And then the other um, answer to your question is that the book also documents the evolution of the bureaucracy over time. So it started out from this place of inertia in the, as you mentioned, in the 1980s and and 90s, where the bureaucracy had very um, uh, few people, little resources, um, and they didn't do much. But then um, in the mid 2000s, I would say since the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics and and also after uh, January 2013, when Beijing's um, airpocalypse made it into the New York Times and all of a sudden you see this rising public scrutiny over environmental issues and air pollution, water pollution. But at the time, the bureaucracy still lacked the capacity to address a lot of those issues. Then what they could do, and one of the only things they could do, was to get out um, to appear perf- you know, appear uh, responsive and benevolent to the citizens in order to shelter themselves from blame. And then in recent years, as you mentioned, especially um, since the super ministry uh, super ministries reform in the 20 uh, around 2018 you see the bureaucracy gaining more capacity 
Um, and I wouldn't say they are a strong bureaucracy now. I, I, I still don't think it's a strong, uh, you know, it's anywhere near a strong bureaucracy. But you definitely see more both kind of legal authority, but also um, just political clout and resources that's been given to the uh, to the EPB or the EPA in China. And then you do see that their behavior, their governance has started to tend toward the substantive so my theory is um, sort of this, um, th- there are kind of two dimensions and two factors I'm looking at. One is uh, bureaucratic capacity, and then the other is public scrutiny. And the argument is that in the uh, mid-2000s and in the, you know, especially around 2013, um, Bureaucratic capacity was low, but public scrutiny was high. And this this is a pair of conditions under which we see performative governance, but it's not a static theory in that if the conditions change, we're likely to see a change of bureaucratic behavior. Right. So it's not, yeah, it's not not a kind of entrenched equilibrium if the yeah, so if all yes. the external conditions change, it will change in response to that. And so you think it is so it changed from having no no power and also no public or bureaucratic pressures so that was kind of the 90s where this all they cared about was you know grow 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 and if people were polluted and you know their crops were failing or whatever it wasn't really a problem as long as the gdp numbers looked good and then then you're saying starting 2010s especially then there started to be pressure to at least look like you're doing something but they weren't actually being given the authority to really to really make anything happen but towards the but you think in recent years they've actually got enough power that they are at least able to do a little bit more yeah. substantive. Yeah. Great. Well, so um, then the other thing. This is more you know backstory for people who don't know China as well. But um, uh, why in an authoritarian state are they worried about uh, you know the their pressure from below or or you know grandma showing up and and shaking her fist about the the pollution at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think different scholars would um, give you different answers. And I think um, my view, and I think it also, um, and let me just start out by saying that the CCP is a revolutionary regime. Um, so it came to power through a mass revolution. So in a way, it came to power through public opinion. And it knows um from the very beginning, that public opinion is a very, very powerful thing. And if you just look at the writings and speeches of uh, the communist leaders since day one, um, they really think this is something that could change regimes. Um, And this is why they care. And then um, there's also this political culture argument saying that in China, there is this, you know, history of using uh, the petition system um, to gather information and then to uh, let citizens, because you're in a big country, kind of tell the center what their dissatisfactions are, and then for the centers to come come in and resolve these local issues. So there's that um, view as well. And I would, I think, what I'm also exploring in this um, in this book is that. Um, given these underlying conditions, um, given this larger phenomenon of this revolutionary regime that really attends to public opinion, um, then what are the conditions under which we're going to see 
different types of state behavior. Um, and then there is my argument of um, uh, these two things that we uh, could pay attention to, which is capacity and scrutiny. But the, kind of to answer your larger question, I think my uh, my own theory would be that it's got a lot to do with the social revolution, hmm. the regiment okay. of power. And I guess just to, to root it in, you know, what specifically you had the opportunity to see from your participant observation, the the fear of these bureaucrats, they're not, it's not that they could get directly, they're not elected, so they're not worried about the citizens coming in and, you know, pushing them out, but they have bosses at higher levels of the the city or or municipal government who will care if there's if there's a, an outbreak of bad news and then might fire them or punish them in some way. Yes, yes, they um, you know it's capricious in terms of you can't predict what are the conditions under which people get fired, but they do get fired. Um, but there is a recent institution um, I thought was really interesting. I saw a few weeks ago in Beijing. Um, there's this new rule. I don't know if it's a district or the entire city that saying that if you get two complaints from citizens over the period of a year, you can get your annual bonuses cut. So, so that's why they have to be nice to people because mm-hmm. if they're not, people, you know, file a complaint about a bureaucrat, then they can end up with less money or no job at the end of the year. Right. So very direct incentives for them. Yeah. I guess on the big picture, I'd also, I think you, you know, that what you say about the communist, um, you know, revolutionary legacy is part of it, although it also uh, links with um, uh, Sergei Guryev and Dan Treisman's arguments they've been making that, uh, you know, all modern dictatorships are kind of facing pressures to move in this direction, you know, with the expansion of information technology and, and, you know, people, people know more about what's going on. So you can't just kind of boss them around and repress them. You, you do that too, but like you also need to at least maintain some, some appearance of legitimacy, which is, comes from a mix of, you know, actual performance. Uh, well, as you know, you talk a lot about the double, double meaning of performance, right? So actual achievements, you know, or delivering um, on your, your, the things that people want, but also uh, performance and propaganda and, you know, convincing them that you're doing, doing what they want. Absolutely. And I actually um, saw, this reminds me of a book I recently read. Um, so it's called Kings and Judges by Deborah Bukuyanis. Um, actually, the book is about Europe. But in the book, she um, mentioned uh, these petitions, the uh, petitioning system kind of in medieval Europe, which starts to make me you know, question to what extent is this unique to China? It seems like there is a petition system um, in every country historically. So that's something that I'm, I will be curious to learn more about. Maybe we should, I know, uh, I think, I think I actually first met you along with Martin Dimitrov, who's our, our king of petition systems. So um, yes, yes. should uh, get him should on his next him. book yeah. doing the historical yeah. survey. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book um, on yeah. information and dictatorship. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to talking with him about that on this show soon as well. Um, so, um, all right. So, so we talked briefly about like whether people believe, um, you know, what that that any of this has any effect. And you did some uh, some additional research to sort of uh, get into that with a survey and with the study of, of newspapers. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about about that? How you tested this idea of like, you know, how much do people really believe this in this performative actions? Sure. It's a really important question. You know, do people fall for this? And the answer is sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, So I use this survey and use in-depth interviews to kind of figure out, you know, first is, does this work at the aggregate level? Because the, the pivotal audience of performative governance is not um, the individuals who are complaining because based on my survey, only a very small fraction of the entire population uh, in China, but also elsewhere, um, has ever complained to the government because people are busy. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the larger audience, so this, the pivotal audience of performative governance is obviously the larger citizenry, and then it reaches this larger audience through the news media. Um, so what I did in this chapter four is to, um, I did this survey in 30 cities um, covering uh, over 6,000 citizens and then to um, ask them questions about um, their satisfaction with local environmental governance um, and, and other questions as well. And what I did is I, I then collected uh, media reports from the local daily newspaper and counted the number of news reporting that contain the key components of performative governance over the 12-month period prior to the survey. Um, And then I read some models, and what I found is that there's no, uh, you know, you know this is not causality. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. need to explain that. But in, in general, there's this positive relationship between the intensity of performative governance in the news and citizen satisfaction in a given city. Um, And then I did some interviews to figure out, okay, why are some people convinced by this? Uh, Why are some people are not convinced by this? And in general, you see kind of two types of citizens to the extent that they buy this. So the first type of citizens are those who are living farther away from the pollution sources. So by watching the news, they believe that the government has been doing things. So the you know air quality is in the process of improving. And then there is the other type of citizen um, who are fully aware um, that air quality is bad, or they perhaps even think that economic development is more important than environmental protection, or they you know, support this view. Um, but then they still give the government credit for trying um, in that, you know, this term of the the street level bureaucrats displaying good attitude is something that came up during my interviews. And then the other thing I found, um, what I think is the more interesting thing kind of out of the survey analysis is that people in the survey, I had questions that gauge people's propensity to use the petition system, or to use protest to air their grievances. And what I found is that people who are more satisfied with local environmental governance, people will give um, higher approval rating scores to the local government. It When they have a problem, 
it the likelihood that they are going to um, use partition system is positive. So you're 11% more likely to use the partition system if you're more satisfied with the local government, but you're less likely to use protest, whereas for people who are not satisfied, they're more likely to use protest instead of petition. So this kind of indirectly lends evidence to um, this argument or this this logic that performative governance is about um, ameliorating these smaller scale grievances before they amalgamate into some kind of large scale public opinion crisis. So I thought that finding is also very interesting. Right. And you could sort of see, yeah, the kind of the, the causality of that story can go either way, but yeah, that like, if you, if you have a, a basic confidence that this government works, then, you know, go ahead and, and when, when something goes wrong, it's like, Oh, well, they fix it for me. You know, it's not a problem as opposed to if you've, you've given up hope and you think they are all just sipping tea or, or exactly. only on a show, then, then you feel like you have to like get out there and do something risky, like agitate in the streets and, and yeah. make a big, big nuisance before, uh, before something will happen. Yeah. And I think this is also, uh, what Martin's book found, or at least one of his findings or one of his arguments is that um, people use the system when when they have trust in the system. So this is finding from Eastern Europe, from China, is that the people actually use the petition system when they have high trust in the government. They stop using that when they um, uh, when their trust in the government starts to decline. Yeah, exactly. If if people stop coming to me with problems, then that's when I should get I should get ready yeah, for the revolution. Yeah, you should yeah. yeah. Um, so um, okay, so this uh, it sounds like it you know worked for its well, I guess for at least you know, the environmental folks could get by on this system, and then maybe it's actually they're getting a little bit more oomph behind their uh, enforcement capabilities. So do you feel? Uh, to be more speculative, do you feel optimistic about uh, China's environmental uh, quality and enforcement continuing to improve in the future? That is a really important question. It's a hard question to answer. My uh, general answer will be yes. Um, and I think that's the direction in which hopefully uh, we're, we're collectively moving and hopefully all countries are moving. Um, and I think we are going to see short-term ups and downs. And this is always what we've seen. Um, and um, so in my uh, one of my papers with your student, Denise Vanderkamp, um, so we lo- one of our cases is this coal to gas policy from 2017. Um, so they ordered, so the for a bunch of northern cities to switch from coal burning to use gas stoves, but then because gas was expensive, um, People couldn't afford it, and then you, you know you started to see in the news that people, you know, school children are freezing and things like that, and they immediately reversed the policy and told people to go back to coal burning. So there's always going to be ups and downs, but I think what's really interesting, and I've been thinking about this, is that now, given because a big part of um, emissions, both carbon emissions and pollution, comes from consumption and doesn't just come from manufacturing um, itself. So when we're, since we're likely to see a period of slowing economic growth, and if the economy um, doesn't improve, um, 
or doesn't improve as fast as the government would like for it to to um, to do, then we're likely to see less consumption, and then mm-hmm. that. Um, ironically, helps with the environmental problem. So one of my crazy predictions is that if the economy um, slows down in China, then it became, you know, cheaper to, to use the the, ter- the political science term for the government to um, increase, you know, environmental propaganda and kind of explain uh, economic slowdown through the environmental frame and through this, this idea that... Um, we, you know, we're serious about climate change and so on and so forth. And I think they are, but I think what we're going to see in the environmental sphere will also depend on what we see, uh, what happens with the economy. But I think at the leadership level, there's certainly interest in um, not just cleaning up the environment, but also taking a leadership role in um, uh, uh, this global effort to mitigate climate change. Right. Yeah, I could see it kind of going either way, I suppose, you know, because economic slowdowns, you know, do in the short run reduce economic output. But but longer run, I think there's generally, you know, better environment is kind of a, a luxury good, relatively speaking. And so, as you said, in these instance, you know, if you if you think, oh, well, we should switch to gas from coal, but then you realize, you know, the the kids are freezing, then, then the pressure is, you know, flipped very, very quickly. It's like, okay, well, you know, we've got to keep the people at least basically warm in the winter and, and we'll have to, to put off the other stuff till later. Um, but you're right that there is also this element where the sort of, uh, yeah, the, the fact that probably was inevitable that, you know, China's growth was not going to continue at the same pace that it had kind of gives them a little bit of cover to say that to, I mean, they, they shouldn't really be blamed for all of the slowdown anyway, because that's just what happens to countries as they develop more. But um, having saying that they're you know, re-emphasizing environment also gives them a little bit of cover for that. So um, in your, um, you also have a chapter on performative breakdown, which looks at some other cases. Why don't you give us a quick overview of, of what uh, what you looked at there? Sure. Um, so in that chapter, I'm looking at the conditions under which performative governance stops working. Um, and one of the ways it stops working is when it stops convincing people of the state's virtue. Um, so I'm looking at um, some cases outside of China. So um, I can um, just give you uh, the, the the pair of um, most different case comparisons at the sec- in the second part of the chapter where I look at where I compare the Flint water crisis and the Wuhan government's um, management of the pandemic um, in its early stages. So in both cases, despite China being a de- uh, autocracy and America being a democracy, despite these regime differences, um, both of these local governments engaged in performative governance. So in Flint, we had the mayor and the governor getting on TV, drinking water uh, uh, in front of the camera. And then in uh, Wuhan, we had um, uh, similar uh, things and also this, you know, performative rescue in the in the night of the passing of Dr. Li Wenliang. Um, so eventually it um, did not work 
in convincing the public in part because those are quite large scale crises. But also it was when these destructive information about state behavior um, got released into the public by, um, in both cases, whistleblowers, did the public become wider, uh, become aware of those crises? And in those situations, performative governance simply does not work. So my belief is that the information environment is very important. But even um, as we know, the, inform- in the information, you know, there's more censorship in authoritarian regimes and there's freedom of speech and democracies. But um, at the end of the day, in authoritarian regimes, you could still have these pockets of um, uh, the state's lack of control over its inv- information environment and then for those destructive information to reach the citizenry. And even in democracies, you could see that, you know, you could have um, the free flow of information, but sometimes these information just does not reach the citizens. Right. I guess, and I, and I would... Uh say also, you know, in democracies, um, there seems to be sometimes that the, the, sometimes their performative governance kind of in, in response to information. So, you know, there's a mob gets excited online about some issue, um, maybe in a, an uninformed or unbalanced way, and then puts pressure on the government to, to do something. Um, and so they do something just to appear to be doing something, um, rather than doing something in the most effective way or, or in a way that takes into account sort of you know, all the, the complicated trade-offs that they may have to face, which is, you know, probably still better than being completely unaccountable, but often like leads to weird examples. Actually, just to link to the, um, so oddly enough, the, uh, my, a China paper, a China book and an AI book both talk about Flint, Michigan, which I guess, cause we're in America, so we all know about it, but the AI book, um, has an interesting story. Um, and it's Avi, Avi Goldfarb and his uh, co-authors who, um, I just interviewed him, uh, last week. Um, but, and I didn't, we didn't cover this story in the interview, but it uh, struck me that, um, so anyway, in Flint, Michigan, um, apparently they uh, developed an AI algorithm of some kind that was was quite good at determining which pipes were likely to have lead in them. Um, it was like 80% accurate or something. And initially they were using that, but the problem is then it led to sometimes your neighbor's house would get its pipes replaced, but yours wouldn't. Or sometimes the poorer neighborhoods would get their pipes replaced before a richer neighborhood. And then the rich people would be like, hey, wait a minute. And they would, you know, I'm terrified of lead and I am highly mobile and I'm a donor. So they, they mobilized and they convinced the mayor to abandon the rational system um, and to go house by house, um, just like working through the city in a way that tended to, you know, that was that was much less effective. So, it, so when they used that system, maybe 20% of the pipes actually needed to be replaced and, the, and this takes time. So it takes months to go through this and like dig up all these pipes. Um, but that that felt fairer to people. And so the the pressure was actually to do something that looked fair, but was less effective. Uh, but then apparently there, there was a lawsuit that then uh, brought by someone who then said, look, you're, you're digging up pipes for no reason. And you're actually harming the people who have the leaded pipes by taking so long to get to them because you have to like go to the other, you know, all the neighborhoods in order. And, uh, and so this was brought back in. Anyway, just an example of so interesting. Um, a kind of perverse performativity, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where, I mean, they were, they were at least doing something about the lead pipes and they would have gotten to them eventually. But, you know, another year or two of, uh, of lead exposure for, for a child is obviously still very significant. And if they were doing it 
in a, the less effective sequence because of, in this case, because of public pressure. Yeah, this reminds me of my field work. So um, what I saw in my field work is that I counted, um, so I counted every business, how every business hour was spent. Um, and then at the end, I looked at this and about 70% of their business hours were devoted during those five months were devoted to addressing citizen complaints, um, smaller or larger scale inspections. Um, and what's, in, what's interesting is that oftentimes those inspections diverted um, resources and manpower from these planned out regular inspections. Um, so this kind of rational bureaucracy has a plan at the beginning of the year, month, season on, okay, how do we kind of select enterprises to, you know, who to investigate, who to inspect? Um, and then what are some of the key point enterprises? What are some of the sectors we're targeting this season and things like that? So if we believe that that's the most rational, efficient way of improving the local environment, then one could make a similar observation as what they um, did in, in um, Flint, Michigan. Obviously, in this case, it's not the rich people who are complaining. Um, it, you know, the, the people living close to indu these industrial zones are obviously not the richest um, in China, but uh, it's, it's kind of you know, that going to places where there, uh, where that generates the most complaints, um, and you could see in a way. I mean, theoretically, if it's possible, you would sort of compare these two models of governance and see um, which one leads to more air pollution reduction. And I think if the if the AI argument in Flint applies here, then you would see actually if they just follow their original plan you could actually achieve more reduction in emissions or in, in pollution at the end of the year. Yeah, these things seem to be, uh, yeah, they have a lot in common, right? There's this common phenomenon of, you know, it's good to be responsive to public pressure versus, you know, sitting and sipping tea. But the, yeah, if the public pressure is a little bit random in terms of, you know, what's certain groups are more noisy or certain groups are more, you know, have the time to go bang on the door of the, um, uh, of the, the relevant administrators or, or have more political leverage, then yeah, that can, can skew things off what, you know, might be the bureaucratic optimum. Although of course, you know, both in the China and the U S we don't necessarily have confidence that, that our governments are just doing the right thing when we don't complain either. So it's a, it's a tricky balance. Um, so, uh, why don't we just, as a last thing, uh, can you tell me what your next book project is about? What's happening for you? Oh, I'm working on this book project. Um, that's looking at this phenomenon of environmental nationalism. Um, so when we usually think about environmentalism in the in the political science discipline, we think about this as a post-material value, um, mm -hmm. a liberal modern post-material value. Um, but the book looks at the conditions under which environmentalism fuses with other anti-modern values, um, such as uh, nationalism, authoritarianism, and um, right-wing populism, and so forth. So that's my next book project. Sounds fascinating. Um, okay, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show to talk today, and uh, definitely uh, encourage listeners to get a copy of the book. 
Um, it's the performative state, state public scrutiny and environmental governance in China, and it's uh, available in all good bookstores near you.